And so I want to I want to tell you, like, because um, I, I was thinking about this yesterday. <clears throat> when when I was growing up, back in the late nineties, no, it wasn't the late nineties. It was the late seventies or, or early eighties, mid eighties, whatever. But when I was growing up, you know, I really didn't grow up in a home where there was racism. I really just didn't. Um, and so I, I didn't re- never really, and my wife tells me I'm naive all the time, so I guess I'm naive, but I just never really understood even that thought, kind of thought process. And, and I remember one time about, I'm going to guess it was about 10 years ago, and I was at work and I was talking to somebody who was a very good friend of mine, and they said something that was really, really, really nasty racially, and, and I thought, golly, man, I never thought, never knew that was in them. I don't even know if that sounds right to say it that way, but like I had never seen that side of them, and they said something, and it just really it bothered me. And I was talking to a friend of mine who is a retired pastor now, but he was a, he was a, a pastor for about 45 years. And I told him, uh, we were talking about that because it really did bother me, and he said, look, he said, let me tell you something. He said, there's only two kinds of people on the planet. There's not black, white, blue, green, yellow, purple. Pick a color. Every color in the Crayola box. There's not any of that. All there is is lost sinners and saved sinners. In God's economy, that is all there is. There is no ra- racial anything. There's no ethnicity different. It's just we're lost. We're either a lost sinner or we're a saved sinner. Y'all pray with me. Lord, we thank you for, for Martin Luther King's life. Lord, we thank you for, the, for what he brought, really, uh, an awareness to our country. Um, and so, Lord, we thank you that you used a preacher of the gospel to do that. Lord, I pray that our church family would not see color, that our church family would understand that when we are in here, when we are out in the streets, when we're on the other side of that door, that we don't look at this and that about people, that we just know that you're either lost or you're saved. You're either a lost sinner or you're a saved sinner. And if you're a lost sinner, you need to hear the gospel. And it is all about the gospel. And so, Lord, I pray that our church family would be focused on that and focused on you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, look, we are, before we get started this morning, I do I want to give you a little update on the, uh, we started a conversation in the middle of December, and I had some pictures this about, the, about building a, a church building on, our, on the trail down there on that land, and we had some renderings up on the screen, and if you all remember that, we, sh- we, sh- we kind of walked around the building and we had those pictures. Uh, some, and that's still, obviously, that's the plan, but we had a, somebody in our church, uh, mentioned something either last week or late the week before and had an idea. And I wish it was my idea, but it wasn't my idea. Um, matter of fact, he's sitting in the back of the room right now. But, uh, and so next week I'll tell you that it was my idea. But here's the idea. Rather than going ahead and building that entire building, why not build a gym, get, on the, get down there, use the gym as the, as the worship center, and we can have... Uh, you know, uh, a nursery, you know, the My Kids and the My Tots down there, and, you know, some bathrooms and the gym, and we can worship in there. We could probably get down there a lot quicker if we did that 
and, and uh, for a lot less money, and then we could be building the church almost around that, almost immediately. And there'll be more to come in the next couple of weeks because I've got the architect and the, uh, and the contractor kind of working on that to figure out what that looks like. But what that'll do is get us all on that land and get out of this $6,500 a month rent payment, which is what this, I don't know if y'all knew what this cost, but that's what this cost, 6500 bucks a month. And so if we can get on that land, that was pretty underwhelming response, but that's okay. Um, but I, you know, and, and I don't know what it would cost to be, there we go, way better than the first service. Um, and so I'll let you, you know, I just want to keep you informed of what's going on. So that conversation is taking place uh, now, and I hope I have an answer, some sort of an answer in the next week or so about that. But here's, here's where we are today. We're in the third week of a series uh, when we're, as we're walking through uh, kind of the, the freakish demands that the gospel makes. Last, or week before last, the first week, we did a kind of a flyover of the series. Last week we talked about um, the idea that the gospel demands freakish uh, compassion for the lost. Freakish compassion uh, for the lost. And the fact that what makes up that kind of compassion is a supernatural, if y'all remember, a supernatural awareness of the condition of the lost. It's not natural for us to understand that. And so God's kind of got to do something, and then we can really get our arms around the status or the state or the condition of the lost, coupled along with a sacrificial obedience to the commission of Christ, being sacrificially obedient to what he calls us to do. Put those two things together and we have uh, a crazy, unbelievable compassion for the lost. Today we're going to see that the gospel demands freakish giving. This is not a money message. Stuff and money and possessions are part of the message, but this is not a tithing message. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but that's not what this meant. It's giving, it's giving in the true sense of giving everything that we've got. We're going to talk about that today. And here's what I, I was going to say I think, but I know. I know our adversary does not want us having any of these discussions. None of it. The last two weeks and not, and not this week. He does not want us focusing on the words, focusing on the commands, and focusing on the encouragement of Christ. He wants to uh, kind of deflect us off course uh, to get us off the path that Jesus has for us and so I want to start us off this morning by giving us two or three kind of encouragements as it relates, as it relates to giving. Number one is this. Number one is we don't compare. And we don't compare because Jesus' life is the bar. Anything that we would bring to the table in light of Christ's life is rags. So we don't compare to each other because the bar, you want to compare? Compare to Christ. We don't need to be comparing to each other. And what happens is we're constantly comparing. Facebook is one big comparing tool. That's all it is. And so we compare all the time, and it's like, if I'm doing better than these people over here, then I'm doing good. And if I'm doing worse than these people over here, I'm probably doing bad. We're constantly looking at how we stack up against the, the other guy. And I'm telling you, don't do that. Comparison is the death of joy. It is the joy slayer. So we don't need to be comparing to anybody. 
And so it is, it is wrong for us as we're walking through uh, these last couple of messages and today and in the next couple, it, it's wrong for us to think things like, well, I hope that family over there that's got a whole lot of money, I hope they're listening to Ed today. Because I, I kind of got it, but I hope they are. It's constantly what we do. Or, or compared to these people, well, I'm doing pretty good. Or compared to those people, I'm not. There's just all of this comparison mumbo-jumbo. It's not the path that we need to be on because Christ's life is the standard, number one. Number two is this, we don't despair. I want to encourage you. I want this message today to be encouraging. So we don't compare and then we don't despair. Well, why don't we despair? We don't despair because Christ's very presence is, is our hope. If He is living inside of you, you have a hope that is eternal. I mean, you have a hope. That's the difference, major difference, between a believer and an unbeliever. This is hopeless. This is hopeful. And so we don't despair about anything because He is living inside of us and that gives us hope. And I think that there is a tendency as we talk and walk through some very poignant kind of truths in the Bible and when we see Jesus saying, if you don't hate your father and you don't hate your mother or your brother or your sister and you don't sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and you don't pick up and get on an airplane and go to India and go live in a leper colony, then you can't be my disciple. When we hear those kinds of words, there's a tendency to just walk away and think, where in the world can I even begin? It's too much for me to get my arms around. It's too much for me to even, to even think about. I just know I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. That's what there's a tendency to probably think. And let me tell you, that kind of thinking, that ain't coming from Jesus. That kind of thinking is coming straight from our adversary because Jesus never, ever, ever calls anybody to be good enough. It's not what He does. It's the, the whole point is that we can't be good enough. And so that is not, that is, those are not words that are coming from Christ. So don't despair. Instead, what, what Jesus would tell us is He, he would say, here is, here is my word. Here's my word. This is my word. This is the primary means that the, it, the primary means that God communicates today is through His word. And so Jesus would tell us, "Here is my word, and I want to model for you that in action. I want to change your thoughts. I want to, I'm going to change your desires. I'm going to change your and transform." your want to. I'm going to change everything there is about you so that you can put that word into action. I'm going to change you so that you can walk the talk that is in the Scriptures. So don't despair. He says, trust me. Number three is that we reject uh, indifference and apathy. I hope you all have, have worship guides. I probably should have asked this ten minutes ago, but... Uh, all of this in the past, the scriptures are in. If you've got to worship God, raise your hand. Well, that means a whole bunch of you don't. See, I tricked you. I usually say if you don't have one. Anyway, number three, we reject apathy. And we reject apathy because Jesus' words are our authority. When we hear words like we've 
kind of taught through in the Gospels, Christ's, Christ's words in the Gospels, there is a temptation to just kind of get numb and, and become indifferent to those words. And my encouragement is reject that temptation. Reject becoming indifferent about what Jesus is saying. Because if you're a Christ follower, that ought not even be an, an option. And some of us, and this is tough, some of us have become a Christian. Some of us have become Christians, so to speak, uh, and, and were told that, that all we needed to do was pray a prayer. All we needed to do was walk the aisle. All we needed to do was come and kneel at the altar. All we needed to do was raise your hand. All we needed to do is any of those things. And then we would have our fire insurance card and we'd go to heaven and we could just act for the rest of our lives however we wanted to because I walked the aisle when I was five years old. And let me tell you, if you became, whatever that means, if you became a Christian under that illusion, I want you to know that that is not at all what it means to be a follower of Christ. Not at all. You think the raising of the hand, the prayer of the praying of the prayer, that doesn't save you. Christ's precious blood being spilled all over that cross and you accepting that and Him buying you back from your sin, all of that, that, that is, and being born again and being indwelt with the Holy Spirit, that is what saves you. And I'm not saying, don't go out here and say, he told me not to pray. No, he didn't. I'm telling you that, that, that kneeling at the altar, that, that raising that hand, that is not what saves you. Christ saves you. Do you all get that? I want us all to really understand that. And so if you became a Christian under that illusion, I want you to know that that is not what does it. It is by it is His grace, and it's His grace. He empowers us with His grace for us to t- be able to, to turn from our rebellion against God and trust in Him as our leader and our forgiver. And when that's the case, when, there, when you are born again and He is living inside of you, then what He says will determine the way that you live. You cannot be the same on this side, this is the lost side of life, and this is the saved side of life. You cannot be the same over here as you were over here if you've been born again. You can't be. Nobody can be. Now, you may have, we talked about fruit a couple of weeks ago, and you may be in the raisin stage, working your way towards the watermelon stage, but there's going to be some kind of fruit. There's going to be some kind of transformation, some kind of change, when, when a heart changes. And so today, uh, we're gonna, the text that we're going to primarily be in is in Luke chapter 16, and I want to give you some context. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke's third book of the Gospels, uh, or third book of the New Testament, the third account of Christ's life in the New Testament. And I want to give you a little context of, of really of chapter 14 and 15 and some of 16 leading up to where we're going to be, and it's this. The Pharisees, who are the religious folks, the super religious folks of the day, um, they're criticizing Jesus. They're criticizing him because he's concerned with the needy and he's concerned and hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners. And, and Jesus is all up in their face 
telling them that those are the very people that they ought to be living for the sake of. Just like he tells us throughout the scriptures, those are the very people that we need to be living for the sake of. And he talks about this in the parables in in chapter 15. And then we kind of talked about that a little bit last week, about that issue of what it looks like to have freakish compassion for the lost, the folks who are heading down the road that leads to an eternal hell. I don't want us ever to take our eyes off the fact that when people die lost, they go to hell. And it is eternal. We're going to look at a parable about that today. So this confrontation is the image in in Luke 15 of Jesus getting all up in these guys' faces. And that's where, and so that's kind of, he shifts, he shifts the conversation in, in chapter 16 to possessions, and that's where we're going to be today. In verse 1, or in the beginning of, of chapter 16, he tells his guys, his disciples, a parable, and that, that parable is about, is, is about the idea that we should use our money and our possessions and our stuff for the kingdom and not for ourselves. The beginning of Luke 16, it's all about that. Our money should be intended to be used and our possessions to further the kingdom, to advance the kingdom, to push Christ's kingdom uh, ahead. And so he is confronting the religious establishment. And look what he says in verse 14. And he's talking about people that love money. He says in verse 14, The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. So Jesus is speaking to people here, chapter 15 and 16, speaking to people who are so so blinded by their love of money that they justify their wealth in the middle of, of, of their religious devotion. Think about that. Listen to that again. Jesus is talking to these guys, to a, quote, religious people, and they're so totally blinded by their wealth, they're so consumed by their possessions that they don't even realize it. And they're operating in a devotion to a religion while in the middle of indulging a a crazy love for stuff. And that's the picture of who he's talking to when we get to verse 19. I want to jump to to, to, uh, verse 19 of chapter 16. I'm going to read you. It's about 10, 12 verses. Starting in verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Look, y'all, we know he's rich as soon as the word purple is mentioned. If he is wearing purple... Purple, only rich people had purple because you would get about a drop, if you were lucky, a drop of purple dye out of a, an oyster shell. And so you're shucking a lot of oysters to get purple to make purple clothes. So, only the, so we know this joker is loaded wealthy. Verse 20 says, At his gate, at the rich guy's gate, was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. He just wants crumbs. He's sitting there and he just wants whatever falls off the table, let me eat that. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. 
The beggar named Lazarus died, and he's on the way to heaven to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, where he was in torment, so we know the rich man went to hell. He looked up and said to Abraham, far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that, that in your lifetime, uh, he's talking to the rich man, that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place. Between heaven and hell a great chasm has been set, so that those who want to go from here to there can't, and those who want to go from there to here can't. He answered, the rich man, he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, Well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. When he says they have Moses and the prophets, that's what he's talking about. When you read in the Scriptures, Moses and the prophets, or the law and the prophets, or the law and the writings and the prophets, that's, that's talking about the Bible. And so this is what Abraham is saying. They got the Bible right there. He says they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead will go to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to even be convinced if somebody rises from the dead. We're going to look at that passage from two or three different angles, two or three different lenses. The first is this, the first lens, the first angle that we're going to look at that story through is, is through a lens of contrast, of divine contrast. And that contrast is here in Luke 16, and it is all over the book of Luke, and it is all over your scriptures. And here's the contrast. The first part of it is that God responds to the needs of the poor with compassion. He responds to the needs of the poor with compassion. Last week we talked about the way he responded to the needs of the lost with compassion. This is a compassion issue. So you have this rich man, you have Lazarus, and Lazarus is named. And there's a reason why Lazarus is named, and that is because that word, that name means the one who God helps, or God is my helper is what Lazarus means. And I want to get this on top of the table, kind of what the Scripture's not saying. And it is not teaching that if you are materially poor, that you get a pass to heaven. And it's not teaching that if you are materially wealthy, that you're automatically going to hell. That is absolutely not what the Scripture is teaching, and we're going to come back to that in a minute. At the same time, though, the Scripture is teaching that God is passionate, passionate about caring for the needs of the poor. He is their helper. That's the picture here in Luke 16. It's the picture of this poor man named Lazarus at the gate, begging, waiting for crumbs to fall off the table so that he can eat, sores all over his legs, dogs licking all up on his legs on the sores. That's an image of the people, the very people that the Lord passionately wants to care for. And so that's the picture in Luke 16. That's a picture all over the, the book of Luke and all over the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. And there's not, we don't have enough time to go through uh, all of these places, 
but I did put in your the table talk in your worship guide. It's the first or second question. I gave you a bunch of references, mostly Old Testament, I think, to look at the the kind of the character of God as it relates to his concern for the poor. But I'll give you a couple. Psalm 22, verse 26 in Psalm 22, it says, The poor will eat and be satisfied, and they are, <clears throat> they are neglected by the world, but they'll eat and be satisfied by the Lord. Psalm 35 said, God rescues the poor. Psalm 68, verse 10 says, God provides for the poor. When nobody else will provide for the, for the poor, God will provide for the poor. He is known throughout the Scriptures as the God who cares for the poor. Even towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke, uh, in chapter 4 of Luke, verse 18 says this, the Spirit should be on the screen, yeah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to who? To the poor. That was weak. To the poor. The good news, the gospel. He says he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free. The picture is constantly the disadvantaged, the, the poor, the impoverished. This is who Jesus came for. And here's this contrast in Luke 16. God responds to the needs of the poor with compassion, but he responds to those who neglect the poor very differently. God responds to those who neglect the poor with condemnation. Those who neglect the poor, God responds in condemnation. And I want to emphasize this picture of neglect for the poor. You remember I said a minute ago that the Bible is not teaching uh, that people go to hell because they have money. It's not ex at all what the, what the Bible is teaching. And we know this dude in Luke 16 had money. We know by what he's wearing. We know by the way he lives. We know by where he lives and the food he's eating. We know all of that. Well, then why is he in hell in Luke 16? It's not because he had money. Money in and of itself is not evil. Stuff in and of itself is not evil. Possessions in and of themselves aren't evil. Fancy cars, fancy... None, it's not... That stuff in and of itself is not evil. Wealth is not inherently evil. That's not the picture that Jesus is painting in the Gospel of Luke. But what we see here is a man who used his wealth to indulge himself at the expense and the neglect of the poor. There's a difference there. There's a, do you all see the difference? There, there is a difference. He loves his money and his self-indulgence more than he loves God because if he loved God more than he loved his money, then he would be doing what God commands him to do. He loves his money more. So it is not the, the money, it's not his stuff, it's not his possessions that is, I keep using the word evil, that's evil. It is his love for all of that at, to the neglect of the poor that is the problem. It's to those people who indulge themselves and ignore the poor, those are the people that God says he condemns. And meanwhile, the poor are at the gate. Here and all over the world, the poor are at the gate. We talked about this a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, I think. And as we sit here today, we've been here an hour or so. In the hour or so that we have been here, 1,000 children have starved to death. To death. That doesn't mean they went to bed hungry. 
It means they went to bed hungry and they didn't get up because they died because they didn't have enough food. Me and you in America, we can just change the channel when that commercial comes on and we don't want to watch that, that commercial. And you know what? Those are the people that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those are the people that our God says that He cares passionately about. And it's our God that condemns the rich that ignore those people. You know, it made me think about, uh, this is going to sound like a crazy rabbit trail, but Sodom and Gomorrah. All of us know the story of of God laying the wood down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you watch Discovery Channel, you would think that they were blown up by aliens. But they weren't blown up by aliens. God laid the hammer down on Sodom and Gomorrah. If I was to ask anybody in this building, why did that happen? Probably everyone would say because of sexual sin. That Sodom and Gomorrah, there was debauchery and there was sexual sin. God had had enough of it and he laid the hammer on Sodom and Gomorrah. But let me tell you what he said, what God said in the book of Ezekiel, in the prophecy of Ezekiel, God said this about that event. And we ignore this. He said, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them. They were unconcerned and didn't care for the poor and needy, and I did away with them. That's what God said. And so it's so easy for us to say all that sexual sin, I ain't doing all of that, so I'm kind of okay we're comparing. I'm kind of okay, but, I'm, but, but that's not why God said he laid the wood on Sodom. We ignore the sin of greed and the sin of not taking care of the, the poor, the very people that God said he's passionate about. So this first lens is this contrast. This second lens is this lens of, of, uh, of choice, and we have choices here. We have choices. Choice number one is we can continue in hollow religion uh, that neglects the poor. We can continue in just this, this hollowness, this empty sort of religion that neglects the poor. And that's an option. It was an option for the folks in Luke 16. It is absolutely an option for us in 2019. It's an option for us in this church and any church around the planet. It's an option that we have. And Don, I want you to miss this. This guy that is calling out to Father Abraham, he's a religious man. The text says he calls out Father Abraham. This dude is Jewish. He thinks he's in, he thinks he's in the club because of, because he was born Jewish. He thinks and thought that, uh, that he, his heritage was gonna save him. That's what all of them thought. They thought, Born into the chosen people. So born to land in heaven. That's what he thought. In today's world, we would say, that's a person who says, well, I grew up in the church. I grew up in the church. Y'all, your testimony don't mean, don't, don't begin with I grew up in the church. And I'm not saying that growing up, of course I'm not saying that growing up in the church is a problem. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't raise your children in the church. But growing up in the church don't save you. It don't save you. The precious blood of Christ saves you. 
And so there's plenty of people that feel like it all begins with a grave. That's this guy that is, that is screaming out from the grave to Father Abraham. He thought everything was okay. Well, he was a deceived religious man. That's, that's what he was. And he was deceived into thinking that everything was just okay. But he lived a life of ignoring the poor. It was ho- and indulging himself. It's hollow religion. And the mistake that we can make at this point is this. If we'd have given this much, or if we'd have given this much, or if we'd have given this much then to the poor, then, then maybe uh, we'd be in heaven. But that's a mistake because that makes heaven dependent on how much we've given. And it's not. It's not for sure that is not what the Scripture is teaching. And I don't want you to miss this. Caring for the poor and caring for the lost is not some optional extra on the menu of salvation. It is not an optional extra on this menu of like. Like you go to countries and you open up the menu and it says care for the poor and I check that and I go to heaven. That, that's not the way it works. The caring for the poor, the caring for the lost is an evidence of salvation. It is a necessary evidence that you are saved. And I want to show you this in two places, very black and white in the scripture. Luke 19 uh, and Matthew 25. Luke 19, there's this dude named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a wealthy tax collector. And Jesus is hanging out with Zacchaeus. And he's getting a lot of grief about hanging out with Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus is a tax collector. And I want you to listen to what happens in, uh, in verse 8. This is of Luke 19. text says, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Can any of y'all imagine standing up right now and saying, you got half my stuff, you can have it. I'll back it up in the parking lot and drop it off, half my 401k, half my checking account, half my savings account, half of everything in my house, half my clothes, half my, half my, you can have half of Susan, you can have half of everything. And, and if, uh, if I've done you dirty, four times that amount I'm going to pay you back. So, can, so, so he says that, Zacchaeus says that, and listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Did the giving away of half his stuff, did that earn him or cause him salvation? No. Mike says no. Anybody say yes? Please don't say yes. No. That was an evidence that his heart changed. It was an evidence that Jesus got inside of him and changed his heart and everything looked different. And it's, this should be encouraging, not discouraging. True, unbelievable freedom this guy had that he finally realized that none of his stuff is his anyway. It is all the Lord's and he's giving it and using it, looking through the same lens at people in that, the way that God does. He's looking and seeing people the way Jesus sees people. The same picture, Matthew 25. You've got to see this. Start in verse 31. Listen to what he says. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. This is, a, this is judgment. 
This is the, a picture of judgment. Verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate, this is judgment, separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Y'all, there's coming a day when Jesus is going to do this. And there's all kind of different images in the scriptures of it, but he's coming. He says in verse 33, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. I'm sorry y'all sat on this side today. You may want to move over there before we're done with this. But he says he'll put the sheep on his... Oh, you, it depends on where we're looking from. Sorry. It's perspective. It's perspective. Um, but the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And here's how it's determined which group you're in. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, what? They say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothes you? You know, when, when did we see you sick and in prison and come visit? Like, when did all of that happen? And the king, Christ, replies, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he says to the folks on his left, I hate that y'all are sitting over there. He says to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Y'all, you can't misconstrue that. It says what it says. And, but he says, For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I needed clothes, and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they, those people will answer much in the same way the first ones did. When did all that happen, they say? When do we see you hungry and not or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and when did we we didn't when didn't help you when did that when did we not do that in verse 45 Jesus says truly I tell you whatever you did not do for one of the least of these you did not do for me and then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life don't miss this he is saying black and white if you don't give to the poor and the hungry whether they're Christian or not. Get that. It's not like when people go do mission work, when our teams are on the streets, that they have to give us their Jesus card before they get a hamburger. That's not the way that it works. Christian, they're hungry, you give them something to eat. They ain't got no jacket, you give them a jacket. We had somebody in our church today brought two big bags of jackets. You know where those jackets are going to be tomorrow night? On the street, on somebody's back that needs them. You think we're going to say or ask them for their Jesus card before we give them a jacket? No, no, no. We're not, that's not the way it works. And so he's saying very clearly, if you don't do this, then you will go away into eternal punishment. Well, why? Because it is clear evidence that Christ is not in you. It is clear evidence that you have not been saved. And y'all, we live in a community... Of, and a religious culture that ignores these things. And I mean, we ignore these things. They're not 
basic to us. They're not, um, they're not natural probably to us. We give scraps to the poor and Jesus says, you're not my people. No matter what you say on Sunday morning, no matter how many Bible studies you go to, you're not my people. He says, but there are people who do believe me whose, whose body I have taken up residence in and those people, those people that are mine, Jesus says, they don't live like that. That's not the way they live. There is a disconnect between claiming to, to have this Christ in your heart and indulging in yourself and ignoring the poor. And you say, well, Ed, I'm saved by grace alone through faith alone. And I say back to you, of course you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. But it's the object of your faith that radically transforms your life. It's not faith just to have faith. He's a man of faith. She's a man of faith. It's the object of the faith. When Christ is the object of the faith, everything changes. Your heart changes. Your desires change. Your desire is not for stuff anymore. It's not for selfish pleasures. Your desires are for Christ and what He desires and for whom He came for. The desires move into the lost and the poor. And so this is the choice we have. We can continue in this hollow religion. The second option is to turn in honest repentance to care for the poor. It's where he shifts in, in chapter 16. It's where he shifts to talking about his brothers, his brothers, the rich man's brothers, uh, who the rich man in hell screaming out to his brothers. And, and this is hell crying out to us. It's people in hell crying out for us to heed the words. Don't ignore the words. When I do funerals, and I don't, haven't done a ton of funerals, but I say one thing, no matter if the person was a believer or not, I say one thing maybe say a lot of things, one of the things is this. If that person who passed away could be standing here in front of you, one thing, major thing they would say is, y'all, it is all real. Every word in that book is real. Jesus is real. Hell is real. If they're in heaven, heaven is real. I'm sitting at, in, at the foot of Christ in glory Forever, the dude in hell comes back. Hell is real. It's hot. Every word is real. That's what the graves cry out to us all the time. That's the picture in Matthew 16. And so we hear this word humbly, and then we obey this word quickly, y'all. Repentance is change. It's turning and changing and going in another direction. We need to change the way that we budget. We need to change the way that we live and the way that we spend if it's true. If it's not true, it's just business as usual. But if it's true, this word determines the way that we live, the way that we operate a church or church is. We need to heed the warnings, not just for the sake of the lost and the poor, but for the sake of ourselves. Eternal destinies are at stake. Everybody in this room has friends and has have family that are unbelievers, that aren't believers, that Christ doesn't live in them. It's their eternal destinies that are at stake. 99% of my family is lost and going to hell. Those, that's what's at stake. Eternity is at stake. That's the image in Luke 16. So then I'd ask the question, where, where are we going to stand? That really is the question. Where, where are we going to stand? Are we going to stand with the poor and the starving? 
Or are we going to stand with the overfed? Are we going to stand with the poor man going to heaven or with the rich man on his way to hell? Are we going to stand hoarding up all of our little treasures? Or are we going to give ourselves to abandoning our treasures for the sake of the lost and the poor? Where are we going to stand? How can we stand over here? How can we stand over here with so many people over here spiritually and physically in need and then call ourselves a people of God? How can we do that? And this should be encouraging because when He changes our heart, He changes everything about the way that we act and speak and say and do and think. Now here's a critical point. This is the bottom line. We are not motivated to care for the poor by guilt. This is not a guilt message. It's not. We're not motivated to care for the poor by guilt. People are going to say, well, do you want this change or, or, or do you want to change this in your life because you feel guilty? No. We, we, no. We don't give and we don't tithe and we're not generous with our possessions and our stuff and our money and our checkbooks and whatever. We, we don't do that because we're guilty. We don't do that because we're guilty. We're motivated to do that. We're motivated to care for the poor because we're saved. It's not because we're guilty. It's because we're saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says it black and white. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor so that you through His poverty might become rich. That's a picture of the gospel. And we need to heed the warnings in the Old Testament. And we need to heed the warnings in Matthew 25 that we looked at a minute ago. But I don't want you to walk away and think this, well, that was a big fat guilt trip. I don't want you walking out and feeling that, because if that's the way you feel, I think you missed it. And Lord, I'm saying, Lord, please let that not be what I have said this morning. Let that not be what I have conveyed this morning, because that is so not the point. The point is to see the enormity of these things and then to realize that we obey Christ not because we are guilty but because we are saved. Jesus does not say it is impossible for a rich man to get into heaven. It's not what he says. He says it's hard for a rich man to get into heaven. And you know what? It is hard for a rich man to get into heaven. And all of us are rich. You know why it's hard for a rich man to get into heaven? Because we love our stuff. We, we love our stuff. And I don't want to, I pray, let me not love my stuff more than I love Jesus. Because we live in a country that is beating into your heads all the time in my head to love your stuff. And Jesus says the exact opposite of that. So we obey Christ not because we feel some twisted sense of guilt, but because we are saved. And it's a manifestation of our salvation. We give and we tithe and we're generous Everywhere we have a generous heart. Everything about us is generosity because Jesus has saved us. And when, when He is the bar, everything we, it, we're like, everything we have is like a rag when He is the bar. When we get our arms around the fact that He, none of it's ours anyway. And I know we hear that in, that's churchy talk. But when you really understand that it's, it really is all His, then, then it's easy. It's just easy to be generous. And so we obey because we're new creatures. We're redeemed and we don't need to indulge ourselves anymore. And I want to invite y'all, I just want to invite you to pray and I want all of us to repent of any sort of 
hollowness that we have inside of us. Any sort of hollow religion that somehow may be still living. And I want us to fall just in front of God and say, Lord, I need you. Because you know what? We cannot do this by ourselves. It's unnatural for us to be like this. It is very unnatural. It's got to be supernatural. So it's, Lord, I need you to change me. I need you to transform me. I need you to give me a new set of of lenses to look at this life through. I need you to give me the grace to, to know how to lay my possessions and my time and my schedule and my life and my priorities to lay them down at the altar for the sake of the poor. I need to, for you to just show me how to be generous like that. So y'all, y'all pray with me. Father, we really pray that you would be honored by the response that we, that, that we have to your word. Lord, we don't want to give you an empty religion. We don't, want to, we don't want to trample all over your word like that. Lord, my prayer is that, that whatever is said here every Sunday morning and throughout the week in small groups, Lord, my prayer is that it would turn people that don't know you to you, that it would uh, turn people to your word, to trust in your word, to trust that you inspired the words that are in the text of that Bible. Lord, I pray and we pray that uh, really for the grace to respond humbly and to respond obediently to what your word calls us to do. Lord, help us just not to ignore you. Help us to not be indifferent to your words. Lord, help us to see you clearly as who you are. Help us to see that you are the God who passionately cares for the lost and the poor. And we beg you to give us those same eyes and to give us your heart and to give us your your wisdom and to let us see people, black, white, blue, or green, the same way, Lord, that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. And so I want to tell you one last thing. If, if you don't know that God that we just described, you need to. If you don't know him, if he's not living inside of you, if you have not been bought back, redeemed by his blood, I beg you to do that today. And it's two things. You repent. We talked about that a minute minute ago. You repent. You turn. You change. And it's going to be baby changes at first, y'all. Don't don't expect just radical all of a sudden perfection because that's not the way it usually happens. You repent and you believe that those events on on that cross were for you. And he will live inside of you and change everything. So let me pray one more time. Lord, if there's anybody out there today, online, watching, or, in, or sitting in these seats that don't, that, that don't know you, Lord, I would pray right now that they would receive you, that they would just beg you, that they would ask you to come into their lives, that they would make you today the leader and the forgiver of their life. In Jesus' name, amen.